Part One, Chapter Three of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Life in the Barracks. The battalion now being organized, the pride of the soldiers was complete. There was no hard work at first, only a triumphal march up and down King Street, with all the people cheering the troops to the echo. A popular fallacy existed that a warrior's fitness was measured by his size. A brawny six-footer was the pride of the ladies, the admiration of the street garments, and the envy of his smaller companions. As he marched at the head of his company, his head towering above the others, his hat cocked in a defiant way, his features set in martial frown, he looked not unlike Mars, leading mortals to battle. In the barroom the big man was always surrounded by a group of admirers, who listened to him with open-mouthed wonder. The big man knew what war was, and he knew what he was going to do. He did not want ammunition. His weapon was the bayonet or bowie knife. Give him that. And here the big man looked so terribly bloodthirsty that the timid ones shuddered with absolute terror. It was amusing to see the big man pat the young slender boy on the shoulder and tell him to cheer up, that a year or so in camp would spread him out and then he could hope to be a fighter too. Then the big man would roll up his sleeve, and let us measure his arm and strike him in the breast. The boys and little men were laughed at. They did not brag. A warlike sentiment, from anything under five feet eight, was derisively laughed down, and so they sensibly held their tongues. What availed a quiet voice, where the hoarse tones from the big man completely drowned it? If the boy or small fellow spoke, he was squelched. "'Wonder what he will do when we close with them Yankees, with bayonets or bowie knives. Where will he be then?' At that the big man would give his moustache a ferocious pull and walk off, leaving the smaller soldier utterly extinguished. That this was, and probably, now that the war is over, is a popular error will be shown further on. It was a natural mistake. Size and strength are thought to go hand in hand with courage.' Every boy who has read the Iliad infers that prodigious stature, a strident voice, and thews of iron are necessary to make an Achilles or an Ajax. Ulysses and Aeneas were men of doughty mould. The three guardsmen of Dumas were athletes. Mad Anthony Wayne, Sergeant Jasper, and Mal Pitcher, heroes and heroines of the Revolution, were all big people. What chance or place is there for little people? So for a time the giants had their day. Ours was to come after a while. On the 17th of April, events reached a climax. News was flashed over the wires that the state convention assembled in Richmond, immediately upon tidings of Lincoln's proclamation, calling upon the governors of all states for 75,000 men to coerce the South, had passed the ordinance of secession. The long agony was over at last, and the North confronted the South. Who's the better chance of success? The South was overweighted from the start. Our adversary was of the same race, equally brainy, and of greater persistence. But the North's great superiority lay in the fact that the slave states were not united. The five richest states in men and money, Maryland, Delaware, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri, were divided in sentiment, and instead of presenting a solid front, gave to the Union Army over a quarter of a million men. Missouri gave 169,111, Kentucky 79,025, Maryland 50,316, West Virginia 32,068, 
and the state of Delaware, 13,670, a total of 344,190, while the recruits from the loyal states of the Confederate Army, not counting deserters, could be counted on the fingers of one hand. In summing up the chances between the two factions, the South, to an impartial observer, did not seem to have the ghost of a chance. The North was one of the richest established governments on the face of the earth, and better equipped to wage a long and costly war than any nation in Europe. They had no national debt, and they had a sound currency on a solid basis. Their cities were rich and populous, and filled with shops, mills, factories, foundries, vast storehouses, and arsenals. The North had also the finest agricultural region in the world, full of diversified agricultural products, which could be transported at will by her extensive railroads and inland waterways. One incalculable advantage the North possessed was her immense merchant marine and an efficient navy. And in addition to these, they had unlimited credit, and could command all the outside globe to aid them with munitions and men. The wealth of the South was in her raw cotton, which had to reach the market in driblets in order to realize. With the exception of Richmond, there was not in the South a mill or foundry that had the machinery necessary to construct a decent firearm. There was not a storehouse within her realm and only the ruins of an armory. A few poorly equipped railroads, with poor rolling stock, was her only means of transportation. In all manufactures, the South had ever been the bondservant of the North, and now at the beginning of the struggle she had absolutely no manufactures and no credit. In a word, the South had to create and use makeshifts all the way along. The strength of the South lay in her immense territory, traversed by vast watercourses, and mountains which would prove a refuge to her troops in case of defeat. Another element of supremacy the South had was her docile slave population, who tilled the fields and raised grain and meat for her armies in the field. Another thing was in her favor. Her people along the Atlantic coastline were as one. As for men, the North could place in the field three soldiers to the South's one, and what was more, the Northern soldiers would be thoroughly armed and equipped. But to offset this numerical difference, the Southern men were of Anglo-Saxon lineage, with heart and soul enlisted in their cause, and fighting for their hearthstones, while the Northern man was often an alien-born, and almost always the invader. The personnel of the Southern Army was excellent. It was superior to that of the North. The Southerners were inured to arms from infancy, and all good shots, and the sons of the men of the Revolution or the Indian Wars stood like their sires, ready to fight or die for what they considered their sacred rights. The Southern people were full of hope. The battle was not always to the swift and strong. They remembered that history was full of examples of successful rebellions. The victories of Thebia at Thrasinimus and Cannae gained by Hannibal over disciplined forces. The great conquest of the rebel Arminius over the consular legions of Varus forced back the boundaries of the Roman Empire to the Rhine, where they remained forever afterwards. Scotland for centuries resisted the power of England and never was conquered, and the barefooted rebels of Valley Forge were victors in the end. When Thursday morning, the 21st of April, 1861, dawned, the city seemed to have changed entirely. All classes settled down to hard work. The fiat had gone forth, and nothing remained but to prepare the soldiers for the field. There had been a wonderful change in public opinion. But yesterday, there were hundreds of Union men in Alexandria. The day after Lincoln's proclamation, 
if any remained in Virginia, they were hard to find. It was but a question now of espousing the cause of the South, and casting lots with state, friends, family, or taking up arms against all that was nearest and dearest. It was no longer union or disunion, it was home, kindred, and country. There was no middle course, no convenient fence upon which a man could climb, to drop later on either side. The tide of feeling ran too strongly for that. Party lines that hitherto had divided unionists from secessionists were now impassable barriers that separated friend from foe. To maintain the cause of the North at this juncture would have been to render oneself a social pariah, to cast aside all that was most precious to the heart of man, to earn and wear for years at least the name of traitor. The whole city was a vast workshop, and here it was that women, du les gardes, stepped in. Recognizing the momentous issues of the hour, ignoring class distinctions, rich and poor, cultured and untutored, young and old threw themselves into the breach, and side by side labored with full heart and soul for the cause that from the first had owned their entire allegiance. All day long and far into the night, even on Sunday, the click of the sewing machine was heard, and every southern woman in that city, stopping midway in her fashionable life or in her daily round of duties, devoted every moment to making clothes for those so soon to take the field. Having no stable government, the troops were obliged to rely on voluntary contributions. And these were ample. Company after company was equipped and their knapsacks filled, and still the work went on. Certainly no tribute can be too great for those noble women. They clothed us, fed us, not only in the first flush of a new excitement, but all through all the long weary years of war. Gave up sons, brothers, husbands, never stopping to count the cost or weigh the sacrifice. They nursed the sick and wounded with such unfaltering patience, such tenderness, that only the pen of the recording angel can ever do them justice. We were ordered into barracks on the 18th of April, 1861, and settled down into a quiet but hard-working routine. Guards were posted, pickets set, and in short everything was brought down to war footing. Volunteers now fully realized that this was to be no child's play, but war in grim, hard earnest. There was no longer marching along thronged streets behind a big brass band, with a gorgeously attired drum major leading the way, and a hurrying crowd to follow the showy pageant with admiring shouts. There was no longer the nightly feast at the city hotel, where mirth and wine held high revelry and unnumbered toasts were drunk in glasses of Mad Clicquot or Monsroe Ederer. Alas, no quail on toast, no champagne, no wine and olives to welcome the close of the day. Instead, a piece of bread, a cup of coffee, a thin blanket, and hard floor. The contrast was disappointing, to say the least. Then arrived an old army officer, Major George Hunter Terrett, a West Pointer, to train those untried soldiers into more military bearing. He at once treated the dilettante volunteers as regulars, and ordered that the private salute the officer. He placed guards at the door of the barracks, and permitted none to leave for an hour without a pass countersigned by himself. One drill was hardly over before another was called. No fancy drilling, but hard work in fatigue uniform. The fine holiday of the past month was over, and it was arduous labor, harder than grubbing, stump-pulling, or cracking rocks on a turnpike. And to render matters worse, soldiers by that time had become too common to render this pettied company, the riflemen, of any special notice. The new volunteers who flocked to the armory every day to be enrolled 
were drilled apart in the first rudiments of forming in line, marking time, etc., and were known as the Goose Squad. Some of them were very green, and had never handled a weapon before, and could have as easily jumped through a hoop or performed the great bareback act in a circus as to load their muskets properly. It must have been men like these that Artemis Ward put the questions to. Do you know a masked battery from a hunk of gingerbread? If I trust you with a gun, how many men of your own company do you think you could manage to kill during the war? Every morning at five o'clock the drum beat the reveille, and up would jump a set of poor fellows, huddling on their clothes, half asleep, trying frantically to shove a number six foot up the arm of a jacket, and getting an arm in a breeches leg. Then would be formed a line of miserable, sleepy-looking wretches, who would stand yawning and gaping until roll-call, and the order given, break ranks, after which there would be a rush back to bed again. Jupiter, what a change from soft feather beds and a tender hair mattress to something so hard that no rest was found. Nothing but continual tossing all night long, as uneasy as the Sybarite who found a rose-leaf under his pillow. Hearken to the undertone of complaint rising and falling like the minor wail of the wind amongst the trees on some wintry night, now loud, now sinking into silence. What in the name of the old scratch is the use of being waked up at this unearthly hour with two hours yet before breakfast? Who can get to sleep again after being roused up in this fashion? Major Terrett must have cramp or a bad fit of something and wants to take it out on us. Heaven rest his soul, he has enough to answer for. After breakfast one hour was given for recreation, and if grumbling was recreation, every man had plenty of it. This was the routine. Nine o'clock, and the old confounded sheepskin was heard again, and the sergeant was wont to put his carroty head in at the door and yell out, Fall in, men, for squad drill! And for one long blessed hour there was nothing but tramp, tramp, tramping on the commons, until there was not a square inch in all its limits that had not felt the tread of each man's foot. At eleven, guard mount, as if the guard could not mount itself without the rest of the company. Dinner at twelve, nice time for men to dine. Battalion drill at two p.m., the old hour for napping. Then no sooner had the men, half dead, come limping back, than they were ordered to reform and practice company drill. Any reasonable person would have imagined this would wind up work for one day. But no, after crawling back there yet remained dress parade. Oh, the mockery of that name to one who in happy days gone by had known a claw-hammer coat and white kids. About dusk a weary wretched lot would wriggle back to the barracks and be given supper at seven. At eight, roll call, evidently for the purpose of seeing how many had been used up during the day. At nine, the drum sounded the tattoo, and all lights out, ordered and obeyed. They went out, alack, not we and then in utter darkness mutterings and murmurings began again, and warm discussions. I'd have won that game. Not you, I had a full hand, so I want that dollar. You'll play no such game as that on me. Say, Bob, going to drill tomorrow? No, I've a sore foot. So have I, from a dozen throats in a chorus, so loud and full that the sergeant cries out through the half-open door, Silence there! And silence reigns. The surgeon was called in to examine those feet, and announced that the disease was called shamming. After all, there is ever some sunshine intermingled with the shadow, and even under those circumstances pleasure was extracted. There was music in plenty, fiddles, banjos, and flutes. What if the neighbors did complain of the uproar, especially one irate old fellow who said in his wrath, I will sue the barracks as a nuisance. 
He had no soul for music. The said barracks had, and so melody floated in the prisoned air about one half of the time. On one occasion, with the permission of the captain, a serenade was planned for Major Terrett. But those artistic, well-meant efforts were treated ungratefully, scornfully, in fact, and sad to relate, the amateur hand was confined to the guardhouse the next day. It happened thus. After permission had been granted for this presupposed treat to the commandant, the few lucky performers were excused from evening drill that they might practice and furbish up old tunes. To aid the memory, a nip of brandy came between each tune. As night drew on, every single man of them, having imbibed so much, was in that blissful state where he felt he was a band unto himself. The performers started out with their instruments, accompanied by a quartet, whose sole instruments were a flask of brandy to each, merely as a matter of throat medicine. They reached the commandant's residence quite late. That worthy man, all unconscious of the treat in store, had long since retired. After a discussion, which came near ending in a fight, as to whether the vocal or the instrumental should open the serenade, it was decided that the quartet most merited the honor. So clearing their throats by a long pull at their melody inspirer, they opened up with, Come where my love lies dreaming, but in spite of the tenderness of the refrain, the window remained closed. This was rather discouraging, so the band struck an attitude. The flutist leaning against the lamp-post, the cornet propped alongside a tree-trunk, the small fiddle sitting comfortably on an ash-barrel, the bass viol squatting on the doorstep, while the banjoist found himself most satisfactorily lodged on the pavement. As for the quartet, they were almost anywhere. One lying on the cellar door, sound asleep, from whence he was, at the close of the performance, carried home in a wheelbarrow. The other three had voluntarily commenced in stentorian tones, Look into my eyes, love. In the meantime, the instrumental was doing its best. The bass viol grunted, the fiddle shrieked, the cornet tried to blow the roof off the house, the banjo thumped away on its own individual merits, the flute was black in the face and out of wind. When the window was raised at last, the major's head protruded, and he thundered out, What the devil is all that noise about? What is the meaning of this? Meaning, replied one of the quartet in Hickoff, we're come to serenade you, old boy. Come and take a drink, won't you? Take yourselves off, shouted the voice, thick with passion, or I'll court-martial every mother's son of you in the morning. A dead silence then followed the sound of the gurgling liquor as it flowed down every throat. The cornet suddenly revived and shouted back, You be damned. We've come to serenade you, I say, and we are going to keep on, ain't we, boys? A chorus of assent responded, and the music struck up where it had left off. While this was going on, the commandant slipped downstairs and dispatched his orderly for a guard. Soon the sound of tramping feet was heard. In a voice of thunder, the major ordered them to arrest his serenaders, and the guard closed round. Then ensued about as pretty a fight as ever was witnessed. However, the quartet was soon secured, especially the one who was asleep. But the performers, using their instruments in a manner never intended by their manufacturers, made most vigorous resistance. Forgetting that they had ceased to be free American citizens, at present devoted to the muses, they knocked and banged and struck out valorously, while the guard, not willing to use their weapons, closed in on the musical fighters, and after a fierce struggle and with many bruises, mastered them one by one. The cornet flattened his weapon on the corporal's occiput raising a bump unnamed in phrenology. The fiddle was smashed to atoms over some other skull, 
while the banjo came down squarely, or rather roundly, on the top of a guard's head. He wore it as a necklace, the handle sticking out behind like a gigantic cue. The flute, just about the size of a police officer's club, might have been a dangerous weapon. Only being hollow, it shivered to pieces at the first blow, its sound and fury signifying nothing. The bass viol performed prodigious antics, describing a huge parabolic curve, and striking with fearful force the cranium of yet another guard. There was a confused jangling of the strings, and down went the guard prone on the ground. A second blow, and one more guard fell, while a third man was happy enough to catch the blow on the butt of his musket. This finished the irate old big fiddle. But with the headpiece the serenader laid about with such vigor that victory might have perched thereon, only, seeing the odds, the valorous warrior broke out of the surroundings and took to his heels. In short, the whole party were lugged to the guardhouse, where they remained all the next day. As for the base viol, he was found in the morning sound asleep on a pile of planks in Smoot's lumberyard, with the headpiece firmly clutched in his hand. It is safe to add no more permissions were granted serenading parties. And yet another incident. One evening a party was given in the city to which several of the company were invited. Not one of them but thought he would give a year of his life to be present. They sought the captain's consent, and laid before him in moving terms the necessity of going, but this he did not quite see. The truth was this. Captain Mare was in an awful humor, which, by the way, was his normal condition. At any rate, he refused those heart-rending appeals, leaving no alternative but to go without permission. But how? That was the question. Believing that in a multitude of counselors there was much wisdom, they put their heads together to devise some plan. Each suggestion was discussed and discarded in turn. The guards had been played upon so often that they understood every trick. They would not be bribed, they could not be fooled. To get out by the door was impossible. Escape by way of the window had been tried so many times that it was useless even to think of. What could be done? In this dilemma it was finally determined to consult the Mephistopheles of the company, Tom Douglas. He was waited upon in a body, and the grievance solemnly laid before him, and his assistance earnestly invoked. Boys, said he, puffing slowly at his pipe, go out and let me think. Come back in a half hour, and I will see if I cannot help you. And say, if it is convenient, one of you step down to Apex and get me a couple of bottles of ale or porter. For nothing, added Tom sententiously, aids the imagination like malt liquors. The desired articles were duly forwarded, and Tom was left to his supine cogitations. It was noticed at the end of the allotted time, when his clients returned, that both bottles were empty, but there was a light in Tom's eyes that shone as a beacon of hope, and proved that the appeal to the friends of his imagination had not been made in vain. "'Now, boys,' said Tom, "'always come to me when you want to get into a scrape or out of one. Have I ever failed you yet?' A chorus of negatives followed this question. "'Well,' continued Tom, "'I am tired of working for nothing. You all know that I have no invitation to this party, and have to stay here. But if I arrange a plan for you, I must be paid for it. In other words, you must promise me three things if you can. Otherwise, just help yourselves. That's all.' "'Not to lend you money, Tom,' anxiously inquired one of the party. "'Who said anything about borrowing?' gruffly interrupted Tom, whose credit was none of the best. "'No, it is this.' If I get you out safely, safely, mind, I shall exact three things. Firstly, whenever any of you receive a box of anything to eat, I shall share it. 
ditto as regards drinks malt or spirituous secondly i shall not be wakened in the morning for roll call some one of you must answer to my name that to be arranged among you to suit yourselves thirdly if i shall ever be placed on extra duties one of your number will take my place that also to be arranged among yourselves by jupiter tom that's asking altogether too much said one of the audience in indignant remonstrance do you expect these things to go on all during the war broke in another no answered tom with a grin only while we are here in barracks agreed said all then douglas unfolded his plan and gave his directions to-night when you are marched to supper one of you slip into the kitchen and bribe the cook that black rascal would sell his soul for a dollar bribe him to send up to my room two or three large baskets and mind the baskets must be filled with tin pans kettles bread trough rolling pins and three or four old ragged coats it doesn't make much difference about the pants another of you hurry down the street before tattoo and buy two pounds of cork and have everything ready at half past seven the drum beat the supper call when the coast was clear tom opened the window which was on the second floor and gave a shrill whistle the signal was answered by a like one and in a few seconds a small specimen of humanity known as the street arab appeared below tom wrote a few words on a piece of paper directed it and threw it to the boy with the injunction to fly the boy disappeared in the gathering gloom all were assembled in tom's room and in a few moments were as black and tan as any horse opera troupe a whistle was heard outside it was tom's puck who had girdled the city in less than forty minutes tom let down from the window a small line which on being drawn up brought with it a large bag containing several suits of female attire of the roughest kind several of the party-goers soon got inside of them and then the conspirators were ready for the denouement keep your nerves steady boys whispered tom don't overact your part and don't speak unless you are obliged to now if you are ready follow me down into the kitchen under instructions one seized a fiddle and played the rest of us commenced as ordered such an uproar that speedily the entire barracks were aroused then tom went to captain mare with his coat off his head bound up and looking for all the world as if suffering from an attack of illness captain said he in a faltering voice i don't like to complain but the truth is i am sick and it is impossible to stand that fuss any longer do you hear that noise hear it said the captain it is enough to waken the dead why the house will be shaken down next who in the devil is kicking up all that rumpus it's mills and hunter said tom solemnly that noise must be stopped anyhow interrupted the captain angrily any old officer coming here would imagine he had made a mistake and gotten into a free and easy concert saloon listen to that he continued working himself into a passion as howls and screams rose above the sound of the music just listen to that i think my company is composed of the wildest set of rips in the world i would rather be the keeper of a menagerie or an under doctor in bedlam what in heaven's name is the matter mill surely cannot be making all that noise no answered tom sadly and unwillingly don't tell the boys i told you i wouldn't if i were not so very sick but mills and hunter have those infernal fiddles of theirs and are scratching away for some niggers to dance here tom put his hand touchingly to his head and his agony was for the time most intense the captain had turned white for a moment he was speechless then came the tempest what what niggers in my barracks niggers dancing 
Niggers dancing in my barracks? What would Major Terrett say? Get a guard at once and turn the whole lot out into the street and tell those black impudent rascals, if I ever catch them here again, I'll cut their ears close off, which I have a mind to do anyhow. Stay. Tell those boys to send their fiddles home. They are a confounded nuisance anyway. Turn those darkies out at once, and allow me to thank you for your information. I will remember it. Tom received these acknowledgments meekly, nay, modestly, and hurried off with alacrity, considering his previous illness, to get a guard. The whole tribe were incontinently marched out at the point of the bayonet and set adrift, feeling very much like Aesop's old hare, who begged when caught to have any punishment rather than be turned out on a frosty morning. They shook hands all round ecstatically, and an hour after were keeping rhythmic time to a divine waltz with a diviner waltzer. It was the last for many long days, many weary months. Why dwell on these trifles? Merely because they describe the little simple pleasures of barrack life, present the private in his best light, that of a careless happy being, at least it seemed so afterwards, and marked the transition between the raw volunteer and the trained soldier. The temptation to linger tenderly over each bright, happy episode of that time is only the greater since there were rapidly approaching the days of gloom, of sickness, sorrow, bloodshed, and death. End of Part 1, Chapter 3